have your copy of scripture this morning, we will begin with looking at the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 3, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 3, look at one verse this morning, 2 Timothy 4, 3. We'll be reading that from the English Standard Version this morning. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Some people do not want to talk about theology. Some people think that the church should not talk about theology. And the problem with that is that often the church gets stuck focusing on man instead of focusing on God. If we do not talk theology in the church, then where are we going to talk about it? It is vital that the beliefs that we hold about God are accurate beliefs. However, it seems more and more that we are less concerned about truth and even find the very idea of truth to be oppressive and restrictive. However, what we need to care about is the nature and the character of God as he is revealed in his word. What do you think God is like? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I didn't ask what you wanted God to be like, but what is God like? For some people, they don't want to have that discussion. Why should we spend energy thinking about what various people believe about an invisible being? In today's culture, we rarely argue about beliefs, and many do not even care about beliefs. In fact, What one believes has just become a passing fashion. In America, we create designer religions and smorgasbord faiths. We take a little of this religion and a little of that religion and a little from what grandma believed and a little from what grandpa used to believe, and we smash it all together and we make it into our own individual religion. And so what happens is what we believe to be true is nothing more than what we desire to be true, and therefore truth becomes relative to the individual. And so the long-held Christian beliefs about everything from the nature of God to morality have been reshaped and have become unimportant to many people today. They have been discarded all in the name of making Christianity more relevant, more palatable, and more acceptable to today's here. For example, I could ask you, how relevant is your beliefs in your daily life? The last time that you sat in church, did you consider the words of the songs that you sang? Did you stop and think about them? Did you ask yourself, are these songs true? Are they theologically correct? Do they really matter? Or how about the prayers that you hear? Have you asked yourself, is this prayer correct? Is it theologically true? Is it theologically accurate? 
Or how about the scripture that you heard proclaimed? Have you asked yourself, is this theologically true? Is it correct? Is it accurate? Does it really matter to you if what you said or sang in church was true or not? We have often heard it said that people don't go to church and tell lies. They just go to church and sing them. And it's true in a couple of areas. One, we sometimes sing them because we're not really believing what we sing. But sometimes we sing them in the fact that what we are singing, singing is not theologically accurate. Does truth really matter? If we go to church and we're friendly which I believe our church is incredibly friendly, and I feel encouraged, and I give my time to be there, and I give my money, does it really matter if in my heart of hearts I really don't believe the stuff that the people around me say, or maybe even what I say? Last week we looked at expositional preaching. Our concern, however, is not only with how we are taught, but more importantly, with what we are taught. We should want pastors who preach from God's word. With that said, we should carefully listen to what the pastor says and determine whether what he says is according to the word of God. We don't need preachers that just make a claim to preach from the word of God. We need pastors whose sermons are clearly in line with what the word of God actually teaches. This is especially important when we consider what is being taught about the nature and the character of God himself, one of the primary marks of a healthy church is a clear biblical understanding of God in his character and how God deals with his people. And so today, we will look at who God is, and specifically, we will see that God is a teaching God. That he is a holy God, that he is a faithful God, that he is a loving God, and that he is a sovereign God. So first, we will see that God is a creating God. A creating God. I was actually supposed to say a creating God, a holy God. God is a creating God. From the very beginning of Scripture, we see that God is a creating God, right? We learn that God created the world. He created a special people for himself in the world. If you have taken the time to read the Bible, you will know that the Bible is a long story about what goes on with God and the world that God has made. It is incredible when we think about it. The Bible begins with nothing. There's nothing. And then nothing becomes something. That is amazing in itself because no man has ever created something out of nothing. They can't do it, but this is exactly what God has done. But after nothing becomes something, God created inanimate things, and then he created animate life, and finally he makes man and woman in his own image. We have in the Old Testament creation and then the fall and things spiring downward from Cain to Noah. And then we have the flood. And even after the flood, things spiral downward again to the time of the Tower of Babel. And then God calls Abraham. And this is where God begins creating a special people for himself. His people have 
times of prosperity, and then they're caught in centuries of slavery, and Moses leads an exodus, and God frees his people, and later God gives the law, and finally the people enter into the promised land, and we have in the Old Testament a very specific revelation of who God is and what God is like. Same is true in the New Testament. There are a people made alive entirely by the grace of God. And they are totally dependent on his promises. When we read the Old Testament, it's filled with account after account of what God is like. And what it means to actually live with God. And what it's like to know and interact with God. And, And we read it and we learn what it means to be God's people. And we must understand the truth that the Bible presents about God and about us. That's why sound teaching in churches is vital. They must be committed to the teaching of the Bible, even if other churches are neglecting it. If we're going to learn sound doctrine from the Bible, then we have to take the time to study the doctrine of the Bible, even doctrines that are difficult or potentially divisive, but are foundational for our understanding of who God is. Theology is not just abstract, nor is it dull, nor is it merely for smart people or academia. Biblical theology is the mark of a healthy church. One thing that is very clear when we look at God as creator is that he created and chose a particular nation of people as his special people. Now, there are some that will say, well, that's unfair. That's unfair. So, I don't know if you ever read through the Old Testament and you go, well, that seems weird that God would choose a special people to be his people. And do you ever think, well, that's unfair? We, we, we think of that in New Testament sense and we often say, well, that seems unfair. As if God is subject to human standards of fairness. Let's be clear, unfair is not a category that you and I get to apply to God. And if it were a category that we could apply to God, we would not be the ones to apply it. You know why? Because we are self-interested, self-focused, and self-absorbed, and far too arrogant to determine when God, the creator of the universe, is being fair and unfair. The history of Scripture shows us very clearly and plainly that God is a creating God, and that He's an electing God, and even if we can't fully understand or comprehend the truths of God... It doesn't make them untrue. Just because you can't understand a truth doesn't make that truth untrue. If you don't think that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and you can't understand it, it doesn't make it untrue. The Bible undeniably teaches that our salvation comes from God rather than from ourselves. And even if we can't grasp all the implications of such a truth, just consider... That if we want to display God's character, don't we want to know everything he has revealed about himself in the Bible? What does it say about our opinion of his character if we don't? If we just say, well, it doesn't matter what the Bible teaches. It doesn't matter what the pastor preaches. None of that matters then do we really care about God? God is the initiator, the giver, and the creator of the world. 
and of his people. And God is the author of our faith. That's what God is like. He is a creating God. Created you and I and stitched us together in our mother's womb, the scripture tells us. God is a creating God and therefore we should have a desire to understand the God of the Bible and how he relates to us. That is why biblical theology is so important. Not only is he a creator God, but God is a holy God. God is a holy God. If we're going to understand the entire story of the Bible, we must understand that, yes, God is a creating God, but also that he is not a morally indifferent God. It is not as if God built a clock and wound it up and then walked away from the clock. God is not unconcerned with creation. And when we read the Bible, we see that God has a passion for holiness. One of the best ways to think about holiness is to think of it in the language of a covenant. Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The language of covenant that Jesus is, that Jesus is using here is, is that same language that's used in the Old Testament. It's not about a legal relationship, but it is about a personal relationship. To understand this even further, we can think of our own life, right? If you, if you make a covenant, a commitment, it is, a, it is for the most important, deep, and tender relationships in your life. That's what you make covenants on. So we can think of marriage, especially in terms of covenant. You enter into this covenant before God, and you promise to love and care for and to give to one another in this vital covenant towards each other. When we read the Bible about God's passion for holiness, we find it in the context of his covenant with us. So in the context of a relationship with us. Now, God's passion for holiness causes a problem when he seeks a relationship with us. Why? Why does God's passion for holiness cause a problem when he wants a relationship with you and I? Well, because we're not holy. We're sinful. We're called to relate to a holy God. So we have this theological word that we use called atonement. So why is atonement needed? Because we need to be reconciled to God to become his holy people. One with a holy God so we can have a relationship with God because I'm sinful. God is holy. I cannot meet the standard. So I have to be able to meet that standard somehow. As sinners, we've separated ourselves from a holy God. Now we need to be reconciled to God. So everyone is faced with this dilemma. How can I possibly relate to a holy God? How can I possibly do that? And the answer is atonement, to which, to put, put it in simple terms, means reconciliation that I can somehow be reconciled to this holy God that I can't even fathom or understand we need reconciliation because sin separates us from God according to the Bible everyone's a sinner and we're not able to deal with the sin ourselves so sin requires separation and if all are sinners then that means everyone is separated in the Old Testament the idea of atonement is linked with the sacrifice is the way God provides for us to make reparation 
We hear that word being tossed around a lot in political terms right now. But here, it's for God to make reparation and restore our relationship with God. That doesn't mean that we pitifully try to appease some God of nature through a sacrifice by our human efforts to win God's favor. Instead, it's God's revelation to his people of how we can know him and how we can find our way to him in spite of our sin. The living God speaks and provides a way to be reconciled. So sacrifice was the way. Sacrifice is common in the Bible. Cain and Abel offered them. The Passover lamb from Exodus chapter 12 is a sacrifice. It had to be without defect. It was slaughtered and offered as a sacrifice. Its blood was to mark the houses. So God would, meaning God would save them. The life of the, of the uh, firstborn was saved. It was a representation of the whole family, and it would be required if the blood was not on the door. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. The point of the sacrifice was God's satisfaction again in the book of Leviticus. We find sacrifice teaching the people that sin defiles and that there's a price that has to be paid, and that price was a life. It taught the people that sin separates us from God. A holy God must be separate from a sinful people. And the sacrifice revealed to the people that holiness was needed and that because they were not holy, they needed some sort of atonement. They needed to have some way to be reconciled to God. And these sacrifices pointed to the restoration of the people's relationship with God. All of the offerings were voluntary. They were costly. They were the offerer's own offering, and all were accompanied by confession of sin according to God's prescriptions. And prescriptions is the key. It's not a description. It's a prescription. He prescribes this is what needs to take place. Now, there was a crucial distinction between the biblical sacrifices and other sacrifices of that time. You see, there were other nations that did sacrifices. But a biblical sacrifice was not brought by by the grateful. It was brought by the guilty. You brought sacrifice because you were guilty. The biblical sacrifice was not offered in ignorance, but offered by specific instruction. The life of the animal was symbolized by its blood and it was required in exchange for the life of a guilty human worshiper and the sacrifice revealed to all that sin is serious and it costs a life additionally the sacrifice was costly it had to be your own property the sacrifice taught that sin restricted access to a infinitely holy god and they showed that purification was needed to atone for sin salvation and forgiveness are costly And this is revealed to us in the Day of Atonement. The one day of fasting prescribed for all of Israel, the Day of Atonement, focused in on this particular sin offering for the whole nation, and it served as a reminder that all other regular sin offerings did not completely atone for your sin. And the high priest, as a representative for the people, entered into the Holy of Holies on that day, on that one day of a year for access to God because this atonement had to be made in the very presence of God. And the high priest bore the blood of the goat, the sin offering. And first he would make atonement 
for himself because he had to be clean in order to make the atonement for the people. And then when he brought that blood into the holy of holies, only God can see it. And the point of the sacrifice and the point of the atonement was for God to be reconciled to his people. The sacrifice of atonement was repeated year after year after year. Other nations, when they thought things were going bad, what would they do? They would scurry about offering all kinds of sacrifices, not Israel. They were taught from the beginning, regardless of how good or bad your circumstances. Things going great doesn't matter. Things going terrible doesn't matter. You make this sacrifice every year. It was a reminder that they were continually in a state of sin. The sin separates people from God. And they could never offer a perfect sacrifice. And that it is God who provides the way of access to him as he forgives sin. Now, what does all of that mean to you and to I? Should raise some questions for us, right? As we look at this Old Testament sacrificial system and atonement, it should cause us to have some questions. Like, what kind of people are we? Are we as bad as the Israelites in the Old Testament must have been to require a complicated system of sacrifices? Are we that bad? Are people basically bad or good? You ever ask ask yourself that question? Are people bad or good, basically? You see, our answer determines what we think a church needs to do. If people are basically good, then a church needs to be a place where people seek encouragement and better self-esteem. If people are basically good, then they need, to, they, they need to take the good that's in them and just build on the good that's already in them because they're basically good. And they should come to church and get a pep talk. However, if something is radically wrong with us as humans, if we truly are spiritually dead, and we are truly guilty before God and we are truly separated from him, then churches must do something that's radically different. That would mean that the churches should present the gospel clearly and tell people how they can find forgiveness for their sins and how to find new life. Please understand how we do church depends entirely on how we understand God and how we understand ourselves. To be biblical, we must know that God is a holy God and that and that we by our very nature are not holy that we by our very nature are dead in our sins and our transgressions and we justly stand under the condemnation of an infinitely holy and mighty and all powerful God and we have a problem then God is a creating God God is a holy God. Now let's see that God is a faithful God. This brings us to the riddle of the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord says to Moses something, especially knowing that God is the creator who made the world and that our sin that caused a rift in this creation. So think on God's passion for holiness, that he is holy and He everything that enters his presence must be holy holy and ask yourself how it fits in this passage of scripture that I'm going to read Exodus 34 6 and 7 the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? How do we justify that the Lord is steadfast in love, that he forgives iniquity and transgressions and sin, and yet somehow he doesn't clear the guilty? How is that possible? If we're going to understand the God of the Bible, we have to understand that passage. That's a promise and hope for the redemption of God's people. We have this picture of the Lord here from Scripture, and it's not one of an uncaring God. That just kind of condemns everyone. God is not only holy and just in his commitment to oppose and punish sin. He's also also faithful to his promises. Throughout history, God has planned and promised to reveal his glory to his people. And he does just that. But how could the Lord forgive wickedness and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? And the answer to that question is not found in the Israelites. The answer to that question is found in God and his promise, in particular, his promised person. See, in the Old Testament, hope required an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation to appease the righteous wrath of God. Hope required a substitution, a substitute offering, and death on the part of the innocent for the deserved punishment of the guilty. It would also seem that hope required at least some relationship between the offerer and the victim. In the time of Christ, people weren't wondering whether a Messiah would come or not. They took it for granted. In fact, the early chapters of every every one of the gospel accounts reveals to us that the people were looking for a Messiah, for an anointed one, that the Lord promised would come. That wasn't their problem. The Lord had said through Moses that he would raise up a prophet. But when this prophet came, he took everyone by surprise. Because Jesus fulfilled not just the kingly prophecies that were prophesied. Most people were comfortable with that. But he also fulfilled the prophecies about the suffering Messiah. That he would be rejected. That he would suffer in the place of his people. And people were not comfortable with that. In fact, both the Old and the New Testament teaches us that this kingly, suffering Messiah is our only hope. Jesus solves the riddle of Exodus 34. He reveals how God can forgive our wickedness and while at the same time punish the guilty. And if we understand Jesus Christ, then we must understand what he came to do. He came as the one that brings restoration to our relationship with God. He is the one that God's people have been waiting for. And where Adam and Israel had failed, and they'd been unfaithful, Jesus survives every single temptation and remains sinless. He is the prophet that was promised by Moses. He is the king that's prefigured by David. He is the divine son of man from Daniel chapter 7. He is the one who the entirety of the Old Testament points to. Jesus of Nazareth is the word of God made flesh. He is our prefigured substitute. He is the lamb of God. He was slain for the sins of his people. Jesus Christ is the faithful fulfillment of God's promise. Our creating God and our holy God is an amazingly faithful 
God, but now let's see that God is also a loving God. So closely tied to this idea that God is faithful is that he is a God of love. The special covenant love for his people. God designed us to be a reflection of his image. He made us to be in a covenant relationship with him. So how can he forgive wickedness and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? And the answer, as we've already seen, is found in Jesus. Jesus is the one who, though was sinless, took on our guilt. Jesus was punished for us. In fact, this is what Jesus taught his disciples, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. It's the words of Jesus. This is what is written. This is what the Lord prophesied. That he would show his love to his people in this very particular way. We can look at the prophecies from Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities. Surely he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. Smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what Christ did in his love. Just as he taught the disciples. The Son son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many listen to how the apostle paul describes it who being in the very nature of god did not consider equality with god something to be grasped but made himself of nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 6-8. On the third day, Christ rose from the dead, and his disciples, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to preach. And in the very first Christian sermon, Peter proclaims, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Acts 2, 22-24. Praise the Lord! Death couldn't hold him. Listen, the New Testament is filled with a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. He keeps His promises. He keeps His covenant because of His great love for His people. Wow! That's how much God loves us. And if you're here today as a believer, it is only 
because God continues to keep his promise. So what does it mean to become a part of God's covenant people? What does it mean to be a Christian? What happens when someone becomes a Christian? Is it really just making a decision? Is it really just praying a prayer? Do we need to repent to be a Christian? Is there something that we must believe if we do repent and believe? How can, how can we do that if we are as bad as the scriptures say that we are? If we are truly dead in our transgressions and sins, how do we all of a sudden repent and believe? How do we do that? If Scripture says you're dead in your trespasses and sins, if Scripture says that God is holy and we cannot enter into the presence of an infinitely holy God, how in the world is it that we can repent and believe? Here's what we must understand. Our repentance and belief has more to do with God than it has to do with us. The reality of our salvation must show us something fundamental about who God is. John writes in 1 John, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning Sacrifice for our sins. We only are able to love because He first loved us. The God of the Bible is a God of extravagant and amazing love. In the words of the song, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Our God is a creating God. He's a holy God. He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. And finally, let's see that God is a sovereign God. In God's sovereignty, the entirety of creation is involved in his renewing love. Ponder the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples because in it, he teaches them to place their faith firmly in the rule and reign of God whose will should be done. He says, your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, some people limit their hope to the things that only they can fulfill and be confident of. And they refuse to set their hearts on anything else. They've been burned one too many times, and they're not going to get burned again. They refuse to put any trust in a promise that they cannot guarantee. Dear saints, this has never been the case with Christianity. Christians have always had a hope that extends far beyond ourselves. It exceeds what we could ever do in our own power. That is our hope. Peter writes, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This point to the fulfillment of that final, this points to the fulfillment and the, of that final promise that of that first hope of the Bible when all things will be one day made right and God's sovereign plan extends from Christ to his covenant people to creation itself. This hope is found at the end of the Bible. The book of Revelation expresses it. The, uh, the book is presented as a communication of God's plans to have a people in right relationship 
to him. The church militant becomes the church triumphant. The heavens and the earth are created in Revelation 21 and 22. We view the climax of the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people. And finally, God's people are truly holy. And they're with him. The Garden of Eden is restored. The presence of God is with his people. The holy city is in the shape of a cube, just like the holy of holies. In the Old Testament, where God's presence resided. However, now it includes all of God's people from all times and from all places. The whole world becomes the holy of holies. The entire world becomes the holy of holies. This is the great news that every Christian has to offer. This is our vision of the future. And that is not because we thought it up like, oh, this would be a great idea. It's not because some committee somewhere wrote it up and then voted on it. It's not a response to wishful thinking or some sort of wild dream. It is because this is precisely what God has revealed to us. While we are on earth awaiting this moment, it is appropriate that the New Testament closes with the book of Revelation. It was not written by someone who is fantasizing, but it was written by an old man whose life was almost over. It was written by a man who was in exile, who was utterly desperate and dependent, but still filled with a hope and a sovereign God because he knew that whoever sat on the throne in Rome did not have the final say of what would happen in the world. He knew that there was a God who sat in heaven who was faithful and he would bring about every single one of his promises. John could sit exiled on the island of Patmos, full of hope, because he knew what God was like. Don't you see how practical theology is? It makes a difference. God's promise to fill the earth with the knowledge of its creator will be kept in the new creation the whole earth will know. The God of the Bible makes promises, and the God of the Bible then sovereignly keeps his promises. Don't you understand how important that is? As Christians, we need to know that God will continually care for us, and his care for us is not based on our faithfulness. Praise God. Praise God that his care for you has nothing to do with your faithfulness to him because we would be in serious trouble his care for you is based on his faithfulness not yours because we are not faithful and I'm sure it's fun to run around and pretend like the outcome of the events in this world hang in the balance based on you. I'm sure that's a great time. The world might end based on me. This might not happen based on me. This might happen based on me. I'm sure that's a great time to think that the world's events 
hang in the balance based on you or your decision. But let's be real. God is sovereign. He's always been sovereign. He will always be sovereign. And John the Revelator had hope. He did not have hope because he knew that he would one day do something. He did not have hope because he had some sort of power. He did not have hope because he might make some sort of great decision. He had hope based solely upon an all-powerful God that he knew would keep every single promise that he ever made. And we have hope too. These are not questions for bookish theologians or seminary students. These are important questions to each and every one of us as Christians. How we think about God has an effect on the way we live and what our churches will be like. We must have a biblical understanding of who God is. Our understanding of what the Bible teaches about God is crucial. We have seen that he's a creating God, a holy God, a faithful God, a loving God, and a sovereign God. For some reason, the idea of the sovereignty of God is often denied, mostly within the church. We must be careful, for confessing Christians to deny the sovereignty of God in creation or in salvation salvation is flirting with paganism. I understand that many Christians have legitimate questions about God's sovereignty. However, any sustained, tenacious denial of the sovereignty of God should cause concern. In fact, I'm not sure that someone who absolutely denies the sovereignty of God is really even saved. Because in their heart of hearts, they're still not trusting God. That is the heart of the issue when it comes to God's sovereignty. Do we really trust God? Are we willing to acknowledge that we are not God and that we are not in control and that we are not the judge and that we do not have the right to say what is fair and not fair to God? Are we willing to put our whole lives in God's hands and truly trust God? That is the issue when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Of God. Now, I'll say it is dangerous to resist the sovereignty of God as a Christian, but I'll say also that it is more dangerous for the leader of any congregation to resist it. To appoint a person as a leader over a congregation who doubts God's sovereignty or who seriously misunderstands the Bible's teachings on it is to prop up as an example a person who in their own heart of hearts may be unwilling to trust God. This kind of leadership will hinder the church as it tries to trust God together. So we come to an understanding of who God is by his revelation of himself, not based on hunches hunches or wishes or how we like to think of who God is or what he's like. Far too often today we act as if evangelism is advertising. We explain it like it is some sort of marketing tool. Some even go so far to talk of God as if he were created in the image of man rather than than the other way around. If we want to be a healthy church, then we must be devoted to pray for our leaders in these times specifically that they would have a biblical grasp of and and an experiential trust in the sovereignty of God. Sound doctrine marks a healthy church. 
Listen, church. Disappointments are a fact of life. But they have a purpose. The Bible's filled with stories and plans that are ruined, but that led to finding the true God and the good that he has for us. So often our ruined plans are to create in us a trust of God more fully and to rely on him and find him that he is reliable. And if we're totally honest, we know that to trust in God fully is not our natural tendency, is it? Instead, we want to cling with all of our might to what we have in this world. And we act as if it's going to last us forever. I have bad news. There's nothing that you physically possess in your life right now that will last forever in the state that it's in. Nothing. And if you're a child of God, you know that he has something even better for you. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the thing that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that we all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. From the last paragraph of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, church, don't you see it? If you are his child, the conclusion he has for you is unimaginably good. You can't even fathom it in your mind. That's how good it is. And as John wrote in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will we be? It has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. As the Apostle Paul was thinking about the same things he wrote in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. This is the God of the Bible. He is a creating God. And he is a holy God. And he is a faithful God and a loving God and a sovereign God. The Bible is all about God. It's about his promises that he made and then the promises that he kept. The Bible calls out for us to respond to God by trusting in him and his word and understanding that what we have on earth pales in comparison to what he has for us in heaven. And he calls us to respond to him by trusting in him. Just as Adam and Eve did not do in the garden. Just as Jesus 
did do throughout his entire life, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. Their God of the Bible is trustworthy. He will not disappoint. The story of the Bible is one story. Its theme is the one true God making, loosing, rescuing, and keeping one people all for his glory. This is biblical theology. In closing, we must understand sound doctrine is crucial to the health of the church. Paul uses the word sound several times in his writing to Timothy. It means reliable, accurate, faithful. Its root is an image from the medical world meaning healthy. So what we're saying is that sound theology is theology that is faithful to the teaching of the Bible and it is reliably accurate and accurately interprets the parts and the terms of the whole Bible. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Sound doctrine conforms to the gospel and opposes ungodliness and sin. 1 Timothy 1, 10, 11. Later, he contrasts false doctrine with sound instruction of your Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching, 1 Timothy 6, 3. Later, he writes to Timothy, What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching, that faith and love in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 1, 13. And then he warns him, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say that what their itching ears want to hear in 2 Timothy 4, 3. And Paul writes to another young pastor, says similar things. He tells Titus that every man he appoints as an elder of a church must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. False teachers must be rebuked so that they will be sound in the faith. And finally, he tells Titus, Titus must teach what it is according to sound doctrine. Titus 2.1. This message can't cover everything that constitutes sound teaching or doctrine, but invariably some people say, well, what should the church do if there's a disagreement? And that is where I say, as a church, we must decide where we would require complete agreement, where we permit limited disagreement, and where we allow complete liberty. For example, some would say, should we require every member to believe in salvation through the work of Jesus Christ alone? Should we also have some sort of confession on believers' baptism and church structure, meaning who has a final say in decisions in the church? These things are practically healthy for the life of a church. Should we allow disagreement on these matters that are not necessarily for, necessary for salvation, nor for the practical life of the church? For example, when Christ will return? Should we allow disagreement? Finally, should we allow liberty in matters that are not central or clear in Scripture? Things like whether armed resistance is okay and whether having a drink is okay or who wrote the book of Hebrews? Should we allow disagreement and liberty? Here's what we must understand as a church and my challenge to us. In light of who God is and what he has revealed to us in his word, We should have some understanding and agreement on theology. That is currently in the works. I believe the principle we find in all of this is closer to the heart of our faith. 
The more that we grow closer to the Lord, the more we should expect unity in our understanding of faith and sound biblical doctrine. And we should expect that from one another and not allow one another just to believe whatever they want to believe about who God is, nor about God's church. The early church put it this way, and I think we as a church should adopt it as well, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, charity. So I'd ask you this morning, do you have a basic understanding of theology? Is it even important to you that you have a creating God? That you have a holy God? That you have a faithful God? That you have a loving God? And that you have a sovereign God? You see, biblical theology is a mark of a healthy church. You show me, show me a church that doesn't have biblical theology, and I'll show you an unhealthy church. Plain and simple. I don't care how many people they have. I don't care how great their church looks. I don't care how big their church looks. They may look healthy, but they're not healthy according to God's standards. And that should be the only standard that we care about. So maybe this morning, as you reflect on your heart of hearts, you'd say, Pastor, I've written theology off. Maybe you need to go deeper. Though I wouldn't understand how you'd write it off with me preaching. That's not to brag. I'm just trying to, I've been trying to lead us theologically for a long time. But maybe you'd say that. And and maybe you just need to pray in your pew or, or you can come up and I'll pray with you. Or maybe for the first time you actually understood the gospel as I walked through a holy God and our separation from God and the love that God has for his people. Maybe for the first time, you actually understood the gospel and your separation from God and that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Or maybe it finally clicked just how sovereign God is. And if you need to respond in any way to this message, I want to give you that opportunity. I'm going to be standing down front love to pray with you. If you want to pray on your own, you can do that. You can come up here and pray on your own. Whatever you want to do, I want to give you that opportunity to respond to anything that God has spoken to your heart this morning. Let's close a prayer.